Our first reading begins in Romans 6, verse 15, and continues on into chapter 7. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And chapter 7, verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as they live? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark in the 8th chapter, beginning at the 31st verse. Glory Jesus. And Jesus began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days raise, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on human things. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will they profit to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? For what can they give in return for their soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, bind us in servitude unto you, for we have died to sin and have been raised in your Son's eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last Sunday we heard from Tim about the scandal of grace. That is the scandal of grace, that if God's grace is so absolutely forgiving, grace seems to become a license to sin. That is, it doesn't matter what you do, what you did, or what you will do, God will always uh, forgive you. <clears throat> now, St. Paul anticipated this and brought it up himself at the start of chapter 6. So Paul plays the devil's advocate to his own argument and he asks this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So he tackles that question and says that baptism, baptism renders the Christian dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. Baptism kills, in fact, the sin in your flesh, in your body, so that sin no longer has this mastery, this claim, this hold on you and your body parts. This was Paul's defense of grace by way of baptism. Now, today in our reading, Paul will again defend grace, uh, now using two ancient institutions uh, as analogies. So the first of that analogy is the institution of slavery, the institution of slavery. And then secondly, he will use the institution of marriage, of marriage. So Paul illustrates the spiritual mechanism of grace by the analogies of slavery and marriage. We'll spend a bit of time on each. That's just what we'll do this morning. So again, Paul, again, plays this devil's advocate and tackles and levies the same attack on grace as before in verse 15. Are we to sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace? So he's coming at the doctrine of grace again behind from a different angle. He's going to push harder. 
It's going to put grace to its test. How much grace can handle the critique? This is where then Paul brings up slavery. Slavery at the time was a widespread institutional reality in ancient times. And it's popularly caricatured that slavery in the Roman Empire only involved people who were taken as captives or uh, as prisoners of war or were foreigners, not Roman citizens, sold in marketplaces. Now, we usually think of slavery as forced, uh, subjugation, um, involuntary. But ancient slavery is also voluntary, in fact, and was at times practical and even advantageous. I mean, for example, in uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the son was willing to become his father's slave. He realized how much he now owed the father after squandering the inheritance. The son was ready to volunteer to be his father's slave back home, for that would be far better than dying of hunger in a foreign land. In verse 16, Paul now says that we, humanity, volunteered. We volunteered to become slaves to sin. In his words, he said, we presented ourselves to sin. We invited ourselves over to sin's house. Yeah, it's portrayed elsewhere in the Bible that we were victims of sin, that we were forced under its oppression and its slavery. That's true. But it's also true, Paul portrays us here as willing victims, willing participants in the economy and household of sin. That is, imagine yourself dressing up for an interview, walking up to sin's head office with printed resume, and you submit your application. And then immediately you get an offer. You get the paper, you just sign the dotted line. You give yourself away as a slave to sin. There was intention, there was motivation. You willingly, we willingly gave ourselves up. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God in verse 17. Paul exclaims this doxology. Thanks be to God that in Jesus we're no longer slaves to sin. But he says we've become slaves to righteousness. We're not slaves to sin anymore. Thanks be to God, we're slaves to righteousness. Wait a minute. Hold on, Paul. I, isn't the opposite of slavery freedom? Like we're freed in Jesus. Like we've been tracking with you so far, Paul. The opposite of death, yes, is life. The opposite of sin is righteousness, but the opposite of slavery, it's more slavery? Like, doesn't grace release us into freedom in Jesus? Well, it does, but grace only frees us from sin, only frees us from death. Grace doesn't actually totally free us. In that sense of the word totally, grace transfers us from one slavery to another. And this is where the second scandal of grace comes in. This is scandalous. Right? The first scandal we looked at last week, that is grace is just too forgiving. It just allows for unlimited grace and forgiveness. But this second scandal now is that grace, as Paul puts it, it enslaves us to God. 
As late modern people, we don't like the practice or the idea of slavery, and we shouldn't like it. We feel we've already moved on from the barbaric institution as a civilization. We were still trying to repair the legacy of slavery, uncover truth about slavery, reconciling with peoples who have been victimized for generations under slavery. Even Paul, as a first century Christian here, he anticipated this critique. And that's why he gives this disclaimer in verse 19, almost stopping mid-thought to like, okay, let me just give a disclaimer here. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That is, we will be scandalized by this thought of being enslaved to God. He was almost apologizing for using slavery as an analogy for grace. Paul acknowledges the scandal. So he makes that disclaimer that he's speaking in human terms just to make a theological point. Because he understood that seeing our relationship with God as a kind of slavery, that's, that's scandalizing. That's reprehensible, even for people back then. Now you could argue biblically, though, that slavery is actually the essence of Christianity. I'm going to make a bold point here. Slavery is the essence of Christianity. You don't have to take my word for it. Because we can hear it from Jesus himself in the Gospels. He says, he taught, if any among you shall be great, let them be the slave of all. In the Greek, he used the word slave. We somehow euphemize it to say the servant. But it means slave. He means slave. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then Paul, in another letter, he quotes the lyrics of the most, one of the first early Christian hymns about Jesus. He says that though Jesus was God, he didn't count equality with God, something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. You want to be like Jesus? Be a slave to all. Be a slave. That's scandalizing. We could argue philosophically, though, that also slavery is unavoidable for our humanity as creatures, as contingent beings in this world. That is, slavery as a human, as a human condition is actually inevitable. And what do I mean? We have a modern uh, word to describe a kind of universal slavery today. That is, we call it an addiction. We call universal slavery these days as an addiction. Every person has an addiction or two. Now, you don't have to be diagnosed or pathologized to have officially an addiction. We know this for ourselves, right? We get addicted to our phones, to our looks to people's compliments, to chocolate, cocaine, anger, unforgiveness, to religious mystical experiences, the travel bug, new novel experiences. Anything and everything can become an obsession, an addiction. Right? Whatever or whoever we are obsessed about, we become their slaves. We wouldn't say that, but it, it's in fact true. We become enslaved to them. 
our concentration, our desires, our stomachs, our hormones get hooked. We get the bait. Sometimes we don't mind that at all, in fact. Most of our lives, there are certain aspects of our lives that we will, in fact, pay attention to, give of our lives to. We will pay money, we will give up our savings, we will choose to lose sleep over this thing, we will even kill just to get an extra hit. Slavery in the sense is unavoidable as creatures. It's inevitable. Um, there was this uh, singer who said that you got to serve somebody, it may be the devil or the Lord, but you going to have to serve somebody. That's Bob Dylan. And then we're translating it today that for Paul, the ultimate question then is for us, are you a slave of sin? Or are you a slave of God? Bottom line is, are you a slave of sin? Or are you a slave of God? But what about freedom, Paul? What about freedom? You you talked about it elsewhere. Yeah, Paul talks about freedom. Freedom is probably the most fundamental, foundational value of our modern democratic age. But freedom per se can either be good or bad depending on context. For example, if you're, say you're free from Earth's gravity, you're probably then floating around in space. That's not good. If a convicted murderer is free, is out and about in public, that's not good either, right? Those are kinds of freedoms. That's not good. For Paul, if you're free from God, freedom from God, freedom from righteousness, for many people in Toronto, that sounds very liberating. You're actually a slave to sin, according to Paul. Freedom from God is not good in that sense. But if you're baptized, we just had baptisms last week. If you're baptized, you've been set free from sin. But you're not totally free. In fact, you've just become a slave of God in baptism. To put it in other words, Paul is now laying before all of humanity, to us, the ultimate choice. What kind of slavery do you want? And what kind of freedom do you want? And there's only two combinations, only two choices. Slavery to sin, freedom to God. Slavery to God, freedom from sin. Those are the only two options. And we have to make a choice while we are alive on earth. But the thing is, those two choices are not equal. That is a good thing. Those two choices are not at all equal. We read in verses 20 to 23, Paul distinguishes them. If you're a slave to sin, that is, you're, you're free from God. It means you don't have to pay attention to God. You don't have to care about His demands. You don't have to read the Bible. The Bible has no power over you. God's not your boss. You can do whatever you like. You're not religious. I'm my own moral standard. I will do as I please. That sounds pretty liberating. You're free. Well, is it really good? Well, Paul says if you opt to be a slave to sin, your remuneration is death at the end of the pay period. He says the wages of sin is death. Sure, you can do whatever you want. You're liberated. You could give in to your desires. 
but you're really doing what sin tells you to do. What are you reaping? What are you benefiting, really, by giving in to your desires, by just lashing out in anger, by just getting that extra hit again? It sounds like you could just have fun and enjoy whatever thing you want to have, but you're actually just a slave to your sinful desires. You're just reaping death within yourself, and at the end of it, sin is just handing you over to die. Sin is a cruel master. He's a very bad boss. Sin has a whip and just will whip you to the edge of the cliff. He will like to see you go over it. So you say, oh, that doesn't sound good at all. I want to be free from sin. I want to be free from that boss. Paul says, okay, so then you have the other choice. Be a slave of God. That's it. You want to be free from sin? You can be a slave of God. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You either hate one, love the other, despise one, and devoted to the other. But what does that slavery look like to God? Freedom from sin means you don't have to pay attention to sin anymore. You can now do whatever God asks of you. You're not obligated to your old boss's demands. God is now your boss. And you know what? He is the best boss you could ever have and work for. A very good, loving, generous Lord. But, but more, much more than that, He is actually your Father. And He loves you like His very own child. This boss, this Father, is so, so powerful. But He's good. He is so holy and unapproachable in holy light, but He is so forgiving and welcoming and merciful. He has everything. He owns everything. A trillionaire and beyond, but He is so generous. He opens up His palm and the earth comes to life with green and lush colors. He is strong and so magnanimous, but He is kind. He's down to earth, literally. He comes to you. He is not far out of reach from each of us. Paul says if you opt to be a slave of this God, this Father, you bear now the fruit of eternal life. You are becoming like your boss. You are becoming like your Father into His image. So which is it? Which would you like? You have a choice while we have life on earth. In the Book of Common Prayer, the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, he wrote uh, what he called the Collect for Peace. It's meant to be prayed and said during the liturgy of the morning prayer in the daily office. And in this Collect, Cranmer describes service to God as, quote-unquote, perfect freedom, in whose service is perfect freedom. That's the paradox and scandal of grace, whereby grace, yes, enslaves us to God, but in His service is our freedom truly perfected. That is, we are truly free as creatures made in His image when we are eternally in service to our Creator. In other words, we are living into the way we've been programmed, the way we've been designed, when we are gear to gear in teeth with the gears of God. We are locked in, we are enslaved to our Creator. 
Again, slavery to sin leads to death. Slavery to God, that leads to life. Which one would you want? That's the first analogy. So then, Paul goes on to the second one. The institution of marriage. It's quite a jump. So the start of, they're they're not related to each other, by the way. But the start of chapter 7. Paul brings up now the law of marriage, which for both Jewish and Roman law held that spouses are legally bound to one another for so long as they are alive. Death of either one releases the other from marriage. That was just universally accepted by Romans and Jews at the time. And then Paul translates it theologically in that Christians have died to the law through the body of Christ. That is, he's bringing up baptism again. And so have been released from their marital obligations to the law. That is to say, baptism, again, implicates, identifies Christians into the death of Jesus Christ. So when water is over your head or over your body, you become legally dead. That is when you've been witnessed as baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you become legally dead. And since you're legally dead then, you're Legal bond to the law has become null and void. The marriage contract is certificate is ripped apart. You're dead. But then the same baptism, you become alive again because you've been implicated and identified into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And once you're alive again, breathing spiritually as it were, you are now free to belong to another. You're now free to marry another into your resurrected life. The implied meaning is that you now belong to Jesus Christ, your husband, your bridegroom. Okay, so what does this mean for the Christian in terms of our relationship with the law and to God? Now, during the final scene of uh, one episode of the Golden Globe and Emmy Award-winning TV drama series, This Is Us, One of the characters, uh, Beth Pearson, Uh, she was this failed ballet dancer in her youth. And in this episode now, she was closing down her dance studio that had failed due to the impact of COVID lockdowns. Like She wasn't making enough to pay pay the bills. She was just teaching online dance. You couldn't really do that effectively. Then she was miserable and was sorely reminded again of her failure as a dancer and now presently as a dance studio instructor. So as she's packing up the studio, she recalls a memory from her youth of when she confided with her then-boyfriend, now-husband, Randall, about her failure as a dancer. In the memory, Beth talked about the mirrors in the studio where she had learned ballet. This is what she says to her then-boyfriend. You want to know why there are so many mirrors in dance studios? It's to correct mistakes, mistakes that are measured in fractions of degrees, flaws. No one else would even notice, but the mirror is impartial, ruthless. I used it to zero in on those flaws my entire life. Then I was told I was still not good enough. So where does that leave me? I'm a dancer who doesn't dance. Coming out of that memory, as Beth is packing up the last boxes in her studio, her husband Randall shows up, comes into the building. Beth immediately was dismissive of her husband, wanting to be left alone. 
just assumed that Randall was just coming to give her another pep talk as he usually does uh, over the top during her bad days. But surprisingly, Randall did not say a word. He just busts out this radio and plays their wedding dance song. And Randall, without a word, comes up to Beth, takes hold of her hands, and invites her to dance with him the last and final days in the studio. And then Beth was a bit resistant, but then gives in. She grins, she smiles with tear running down her face, and then she lays her head on Randall's shoulders as they were watching themselves dance in front of the mirrors. And she just whispers to him, there's still too much. Now the law is like a mirror all around us. In fact, following us, surrounding us all through our life. Impartial, ruthless, unforgiving. It shows us all our flaws in fractions of degrees. It zeroes in. It invites us to zero in on our mistakes. It tells us that we are and will never be good enough. Some of us are still trying to recover and heal from that, whether from your upbringing, from that harsh voice in your own head criticizing yourself. I tend to do that myself. The law becomes an aggressor. The mirror tells us that we are failures, that we will die a million deaths even before we reach the end of our lives, reaping the fruit of death. But then Jesus comes into our hearts, into our lives. He comes to us, and he just simply embraces us, invites us to dance with him, as it were, because he loves us, adores us, cherishes us for who we are, loves us enough to not let us stay the way we are. He overshadows us with his unconditional affection. So then something changes for us. Like we will glimpse now in that same mirror how we are now held so closely, so tightly. We will feel so loved and desired by the only one whose opinion matters at the end of our lives and for all eternity. The mirror hits differently now. The mirror hits differently. The mirror does not have the same power, the same condemnation as it did. We don't have to stay there or linger in that accusation. We can gaze into the mirror, perceive how we're loved, held, embraced, forgiven, and welcomed by our bridegroom, Jesus. We have died, as it were, to the mirror's accusing and ruthless power as we've been raised again into the sanctifying love of Jesus Christ. Here then is the other dynamic of discipleship. Love. Love becomes our drive. Love becomes our motivation so that we may now please Him. That we may be obedient unto Him. Love is the foundation of any good and lasting marriage, as we would say and attest to. The love of Christ now compels us. Right? Have you not felt the enslaving power of love? That's a different kind of slavery. That kind of slavery hits us differently when we are so enamored, so enraptured. Love somehow is blind, right? And then Paul says here, as he describes, this is a new way of the Spirit. 
That we're operating now in this new way of the Spirit and not to the old way of the written code. This new way of the Spirit is love and affection and sensation for Jesus Christ. Now last Sunday, Tim said that Christians can still operate under fear and pride, even though grace has set us free. Rather, we're invited to live into gratitude or thankfulness because of grace. So now we have gratefulness, and beside it, you could say, is love. Love and gratitude. We can now live in love out of our servitude to God. Now, how would that translate to our lives? In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, uh, Philip Yancey, he imagined himself needing to study German uh, to graduate from Christian seminary. So he set up this scenario when his professor now approaches him at the end of, or just at the beginning of the semester. He gives him grace, as it were, and promises Yancey that, you know what, Yancey, you will graduate with your degree. We promise you that. Even if you fail German class, um, just know that you will have your degree at the end of it. Just sort of enjoy the rest of your semester. It's fine. Philip then says that he will work out in his own heart, that he will lose all incentive to actually learn German, no matter how worthwhile that would be to learn another language. All motivation to study the language would have vanished. He's just going to coast through the semester. He's not going to take it seriously. I'm going to get a degree. I don't need to study German. I want that degree. But Yancey said his relationship to German would be a vastly different story if his wife only speaks German. That is, Yancey explains that now out of his love and, and desire and interest to know and understand and communicate with his wife better, he will spend every minute and effort to study and learn German just so that he can better engage and communicate with his wife. Yes, the experience of studying and learning German is going to be absolutely grueling. It's always tough to learn a new language. But it would be exhilarating. It would be thrilling. It would be exciting for the prospect of connecting deeper with his wife in the language that he loves, in that cultural language that he, she adores. They could be together in a new way if he learns German. Much in the same way, we can we are given the power to obey the law, God's moral code, to obey the Bible. It sounds religious, to live in service unto Him. But we don't have to do that anymore, according to fear and pride. We don't have to obey out of compulsion and obligation. But we could do so out of now gratitude and love for Jesus Christ, out of our gratefulness and love for His grace. Let me end with this illustration from the Bible. In the book of Genesis, um, when his uh, uncle Laban uh, promised Jacob his daughter's, uh, Rachel's hand in marriage, in exchange for seven years of hard labor, you, you probably know the story, Jacob went wholeheartedly and went out to work with all of his heart. Um, and it's very curious, I find it fascinating that there was this like short commentary that the author of Genesis put in. And it says that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days. What an interesting commentary. Why? For the love he had for her. 
Seven years of hard labor seemed unto him but a few days because of her love for her. What a breeze for Jacob. It was such a breeze. I would have done it all over again for Rachel. That was how he felt out of her love and obligation unto her. And would that now our love for Jesus compel us in grateful servitude unto him, in our submission to his lordship all our days, that we would feel this as a pleasant privilege, as a happy delight to be counted as servants of his household, as ministers of his kingdom on earth, as slaves to his enterprise, to the end that we would actually lose ourselves. We'd give up ourselves for his sake, that we may find ourselves, we may find life in him, to bind ourselves to him in whose service is perfect freedom, to the glory of God our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.